It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. You are now locked in the conspiracy asylum. Welcome to the Conspiracy Asylum. This is DJ Schwartz once again. And once again, we're doing a solo episode. And this solo episode is going to be on D.B. Cooper. If you don't know anything about D.B. Cooper or the alleged hijacking, do not fear. Conspiracy Asylum's got your back. We're going to educate that ass. Remember to hit us up with your favorite episode and your opinion on that topic. No matter if you agree with us or disagree with us, give us your opinion on that topic and I'll send you a free sticker and a postcard signed by yours truly and Kitty Kim. Currently, Kim is in the other room. She's playing Super Smash Bros that I got her for our anniversary. She really wanted that game. And we just got done putting together the grill that she got me for Father's Day. So that's what's been going on today. But remember... We love you guys. We care about you guys. So if you're ever having any bad thoughts or bad feelings, if you need help, please get help. And there's plenty of resources out there, such as the Suicide Lifeline. In every episode, I'm going to bring this up and give you guys the number. The number is 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. If you need help, please, please get help. Also, go to theconspiracyasylum.com, and you can get our various points of contact there, including our BitChute channel, because fuck YouTube. We're always going to say fuck YouTube, too, because I am done with YouTube. I've been looking for alternative routes to put up videos, and it seems like BitChute is probably the next, the next guy up. I've got a channel on there now. I've got a few of our videos actually posted on our website. And also, I've got the link to our BitChute channel. And it's kind of a grassroots type of program, BitChute is. It's not like YouTube, where it was put together by a fucking corporation. It doesn't have the financial backing that YouTube does. So, go ahead and check out BitChute. If you have any videos that have been banned on YouTube, check BitChute. They'll probably be there. Because that's what people end up going to after they get banned from YouTube. They go to BitChute. So 
I shouldn't say there's no censorship going on there, but it's not to the extent that YouTube has taken it to now. Go ahead and check that out. Bitshoot.com. B-I-T-C-H-U-T-E.com. But today we're doing D.B. Cooper. It's a very interesting topic that actually my dad had brought up to me the other day. And my dad isn't really into like the true crime uh, horror stuff or any of the alien stuff or the conspiracy theory stuff. So it was kind of weird that he came out of nowhere and actually asked, you know, if I had done an episode on this yet. And I was like, no, I haven't. And for some reason, I hadn't thought about it. But I remember watching stuff on History Channel when I was a kid about D.B. Cooper. My dad was telling me how he lived through the time because, I mean, my dad was born in 1953. So this was in 1971. So he remembers this happening in the news. Basically, this one uh, this one is for my dad because he uh, suggested it. So quick rundown about what happened with D.B. Cooper. On the afternoon of November 24th, 1971, a nondescript man calling himself Dan Cooper approached the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland, Oregon. He used cash to buy a one-way ticket on Flight 305 bound for Seattle, Washington. Thus began one of the great unsolved mysteries in FBI history. Cooper was a quiet man who appeared to be in his mid-40s wearing a business suit with a black tie and white shirt. He ordered a drink, bourbon, and soda while the flight was waiting to take off. A short time after 3 p.m., he handed the stewardess a note indicating that he had a bomb in his briefcase and wanted her to sit with him. The stunned stewardess did as she was told, opening a cheap attache Cooper showed her a glimpse of a mass of wires and red-colored sticks and demanded she write what he told her to write. Soon she was walking a new note to the captain of the airplane that demanded four parachutes and $200,000 in $20 bills. When the flight landed in Seattle, the hijacker exchanged the flight's 36 passengers for the money and parachutes. Cooper kept several crew members and the plane took off again, ordered to set a course for Mexico City. Somewhere between Seattle and Reno, a little before 8 p.m., the hijacker did the incredible. He jumped out of the back of the plane with a parachute and the ransom money. The pilots landed safely, but Cooper had disappeared in the night, and his ultimate fate remains a mystery to this day. It's kind of crazy how this guy got away with this. If he lived, he completely got away with it. And he got $200,000 to fucking prove it. Which is absolutely nuts because in today's money, that's over a million. If you want to do the calculator online and be exact, you can. But from the sounds of it, it was a little bit over a million dollars in today's money. In $20 bills, imagine that. two hundred, Even $200,000 is a lot in today's money. And that's how much he got back in 1971. That was enough for him to live the rest of his life on, easily. And we're going to go through kind of a little bit of a timeline here of events leading up to the day of the hijacking, a more breakdown of the day of the hijacking, and... The several things afterwards, because the actual story of D.B. Cooper 
is like a small little part of the whole big picture of the D.B. Cooper case because there are so many suspects. There's one specific letter that has been examined over and over again, and it's not the ransom note. The actual ransom note is uh, surprisingly hard to find on the internet. I wasn't able to find the actual original ransom note. There's a lot of people that quote the ransom note, and I'm wondering where they're getting the quote from because there isn't really a place to get the ransom note. Uh, I went to the FBI website, and the FBI website did not have the ransom note also. So that must be something that's still either classified or it was destroyed or something like that because it's not really available online as far as I know. And the amount of evidence in this case, too, is surprising. There is a quite, there is a lot of real evidence. There's even DNA evidence. There's an entire website dedicated to convicting one guy of being D.B. Cooper. And this guy actually died in 2014, I do believe. I do believe all the suspects for D.B. Cooper are dead now. All the ones that were big names, at least. Uh, one of them was Walter Ricca is one we're going to talk about. Uh, there's Kenneth Christensen, Lynn Doyle, Dwayne Weber, and Richard McCoy. And Richard McCoy was actually a guy that hijacked another plane. We'll go through that. And there were uh, three separate confessions, too, by three separate people. And we'll go over those, too. So we're going to start out here uh, with the timeline. Let's start out 1931. February 21st, 1931. Now, this is 40 years before the hijacking, the infamous D.B. Cooper hijacking. February 21st, 1931 is the date of the very first hijacking in America by Peruvian rebels that demanded the pilot of a Ford tri-motor craft fly over Lima so they can drop political leaflets. They didn't even want money. They didn't want to kill nobody. They wanted to drop leaflets over Lima. Pretty fucked up. Actually, it wasn't the first skyjacking in America. It was the first skyjacking really recorded, period. So you got to think 1931. We're not that far into inventing airplanes. I mean, airplanes were only invented, what, 20 years before this? That's uh, not a very advanced aircraft there. And uh, obviously security wasn't that tight because not that many people had airplanes. So much less even being able to ride on one. Now, May 1st, 1961, in the first American skyjacking, Antulio Ramirez Ortiz holds a knife to a pilot's throat and points a gun at the co-pilot of a National Airlines flight en route to Key West. He's busy up there. How you, I guess you got the knife to the pilot's throat and then you got the gun in the other hand, but I mean, you're busy there. I don't know. You can't really direct traffic, meaning you can't really order people around, you know. I guess I don't know how to hijack an airplane, but that's. it seems like you would want one free hand at least. Uh, he demands to go to Cuba, and the plane returns safely to Florida after dropping him off. Ortiz is arrested 14 years later in Miami, trying to re-enter the U.S. Wow, you're stupid. <laughs> if he didn't come back to the U.S., he would have been fine. He wouldn't have been arrested. In 1965, Northwest Orient Airlines purchases the Boeing 727 Cooper would later hijack. 
easy to maneuver and able to take off at low speeds and land at small airports. The 727 became the most popular domestic carrier of its day, and it was also the only jet to come equipped with aft stairs, which that's going to be something that comes into play if you don't know about the D.B. Cooper case. The lift stairs on the back was something that was not standard back in 1971. It was specific to Boeing 727s. And this is how the timeline goes. Sometime before 1.30 p.m., a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper purchased a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. And then at about 1.30 p.m., D.B. Cooper boards the Boeing 727 registration number N467US at Portland International Airport that is bound for Seattle, Washington and orders a bourbon and soda. I guess for the people that don't live in America, I guess you might not know where Portland, Oregon and Seattle are, but that's pretty much driving distance. <laughs> now, 2.50 p.m., the Boeing 727 takes off according to schedule. 3 p.m., this is when shit goes down, this is when shit gets interesting. D.V. Cooper passes a note to flight attendant Florence Schaffner, which states, I have a bomb in my briefcase. I will use it if necessary. I want you to sit next to me. You are being hijacked. The bomb appears to be four red cylinders with coils of wire between them. When we talked about that, it looked like basically cartoon dynamite. 3.05 p.m. D.B. Cooper orders Schaffner to request that the pilots inform air control that he demanded $200,000 in $20 bills and four parachutes, or he would detonate the bomb. Now at 5.39 p.m., Cooper's informed that his demands were met and the plane lands at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. He is given four civilian-grade parachutes after turning down the military-grade ones he was offered initially and a bag containing the demanded $200,000. 7.40 p.m. After refueling, the plane takes off again, and after explaining his flight plan to the pilots, Cooper orders everybody to remain in the cockpit until they land. 8 p.m. A warning light appears on the pilot's console, indicating that the plane's aft stairs had been opened. So it's basically like an open door light on a car. It indicated that the stairs were down at about 8 p.m. Now 8.13 p.m., the plane experienced a sudden downward movement that required trimming to bring the plane back to level flight. The plane lands safely at Reno Airport and is quickly searched by police and military officials. However, it is discovered that Cooper must have jumped out. So yeah, there's a couple of things there. He demanded four parachutes. Now, he demanded four of them because he wanted them to think he was going to jump with somebody. If he was going to jump alone, they might have just gave him a fucked up parachute that didn't work. So then he would just die. Or he wanted to make sure that one of them worked, not thinking that they're going to tamper with one. But he wanted to make sure one of them worked. So he took four. So I, there's many theories of why he took four. But that's why he turned down the military grade ones. He didn't trust the people giving him the parachutes. 
Now we'll find out that all of that $200,000, the serial numbers had been recorded, obviously, because in a ransom of any sort that's paid out, they keep the serial numbers of these bills and they basically put out a reward for them afterwards if it's ever done again, which we don't give in to terroristic threats anymore. So I don't think that'll ever really happen again. But then if you go and spend it, somebody that gets it, like a store owner or something like that, would get a lot more money for that $20 bill. They might get a couple hundred bucks for turning in the guy so it's worth it for them to look at the serial number and compare it. And this flight attendant, this Floor Schaffner, sorry if I'm butchering her name or whatever, but that's what it looks like is Schaffner. This Florence Schaffner said that this guy couldn't have been more polite. <laughs> he was one of the things that she said is that for a guy that was hijacking a plane, he was super polite he said sir and ma'am and please and thank you and all of this shit it was like he wasn't even hijacking the plane he acted like a normal civilian he kept his cool through the whole fucking thing he wasn't jumpy he wasn't angry he wasn't mad he wasn't super happy either he was just calm Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The fallout from this, it affects America in a huge way. Not only has D.B. Cooper become almost like a folk hero, he's almost like an anti-hero. Because he got away with it and he didn't really harm anybody in doing that. That's the whole thing. He stole the money, which I completely agree. That's completely wrong. But in the public's mind, that's like an anti-hero. It's like a Stone Cold Steve Austin where, you know, you want to beat the shit out of your boss and you see it on TV, Stone Cold Steve Austin beating the shit out of their boss. And it's something that, you know, a bunch of people fantasize about because they hate their boss. So it kind of goes along those lines where it's the anti-hero. He's doing something that's bad, but it's something that a lot of people have wanted to do. And that's taking money from the government because the government's been stealing from us, which I completely agree with that, too. That, you know, taxes basically are stealing. I mean, taxes is stealing no matter which way you look at it. We're the ones that earn the money and the government just takes it because we live here. So, yeah, he's become an anti-hero. He's like along the lines of uh, John Dillinger, uh, Jesse James, and those guys actually killed people. This guy didn't kill nobody. So, 
But on December 8, 1971, U.S. Attorney General John N. Mitchell releases the serial numbers of the $20 bills that made up Cooper's ransom. Initially, no bills are recovered, fueling the theory that Cooper perished in his jump. But the publicity surrounding the event may have just driven Cooper further underground, which is very, very possible. April 7th, 1972. This is another interesting fact here. This actually brings forth a suspect in the case. Richard Floyd McCoy hijacks a Boeing 727, demands $500,000 and four parachutes, and jumps out of a plane over Bravo, Utah. The FBI suspects him of being Cooper, but a Las Vegas alibi clears him of any connection. It is strange that he would ask for four parachutes, but if he did hear about the D.B. Cooper case, this could just be a copycat. He saw that D.B. Cooper got away with it, so he wanted to try it himself. 1978, Northwest sells the plane used in the Cooper hijacking to Piedmont Airlines in North Carolina. Come on, raise up, take a shirt off, spin around your head like a helicopter. Petey Pablo! Okay. I'm old, I know. A hunter in Washington finds a placard verified to be from the aft stairs of Cooper 727. So they found a clue. They got a raging clue right there. February 1980, Brian Ingram, an 8-year-old boy, finds $5,800 in decomposing $20 bills by the edge of the Columbia River near Vancouver, Washington. We have a listener in Vancouver, Washington. There's somebody, there's somebody that listens to the show that lives in Vancouver, Washington, because I remember seeing Vancouver and being like, oh, fuck, I gotta send another thing to Canada because the last time I spent shit to Canada, I needed like 40 stamps. No, I only needed three. But still, it got returned, I think, twice. Once. No, it only got returned once. I don't know, I'm being dramatic. The FBI matches the serial numbers on those bills to the Cooper ransom. It is the only Cooper money ever to be recovered. So only $5,800 was found. 1985 D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened, is published. The book is based on interviews with a woman known as Clara who claims to have discovered an injured Cooper two days after the hijacking and then fell in love with him. Many discredit this account. Yeah, that just sounds fishy as fuck. 1986 FBI agents Ralph P. Himmelbach and Thomas K. Worcester. Norak, the investigation of D.B. Cooper, is published. The pair suspect Cooper died in the jump. Okay. Their last names are Himmelbach and Worcester. If you're really going to get fucking anal about it. But their names are all fucked. Now, May 1986, Bill Ingram, now 14, receives $2,760 from his discovery of the small portion of Cooper loot. Fuck that. That kid should have gotten $5,800 like he found. Fuck that. He got fucked over there. Big fucking time. Because he found $5,800 for the government and they gave him $2,760. That is fucked. I actually kind of have another theory in my head now just thinking about that shit. 
but I'll wait till the end to give it to you. A portion is given to the insurer of Northwest Orient. The last $280 is kept as evidence. June 1st, 1989, John List, a fugitive, is arrested for shooting his mother, wife, and three children in 1971. Former FBI agent Him Oh, here he is again. Himmelsbach calls List a viable suspect in the D.B. Cooper case, but List denies any involvement. If it's somebody that's already going to jail for life, too, and it's something like this where it almost would make him like an anti-hero... People are going to want to confess to this. So if he's denying it, he probably didn't do it, in all honesty. I know he's not a very reliable source, but you have to take into the fact that most people that commit crimes like that, that commit violent crimes like that, are looking for attention and possible ways to make money. Because even in jail, if you're D.B. Cooper... You're going to be able to make money off of movie deals and books and all types of shit. If the courts allow it, of course. Russell, an FBI agent who worked the McCoy case and Bernie Rose, a former parole officer, published D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy. The book supposes that McCoy was Cooper because he had newspaper clippings about Cooper in his car. And because his family claimed a mother of pearl tie clasp Cooper left behind on the jet belonged to McCoy. I remember hearing that too. November 24th, 1996. The aerial store and tavern, a bar in southwestern Washington, throws an 11-hour party to commemorate the 25th anniversary of Cooper's mysterious jump. Drawing 500 people across the U.S. aerial, a town of 50, is thought by some to be the place Cooper landed. The aerial store throws the Cooper party every year near Thanksgiving. Festivities include fireworks, raffles for Cooper memorabilia, and a Cooper lookalike contest. That would be actually kind of fun, I think. I think I could pull it off. I think I could dress up like Cooper. I don't think it'd be that hard. I thought I had a picture there, right there. I'd have to lose some hair. You had like a receding hairline and shit. I can put on one of them wig things that like the flesh colored wig things that make you look bald. And beat D.B. Cooper for Halloween. Maybe that's what I'll do. The Boeing 727-100 aircraft used in the Cooper hijacking is scrapped in the Memphis junkyard. Scrapped on the anniversary, the 25th anniversary of the hijacking. July 24th, the year 2000. As a person that lived through the year 2000, I feel like that's the way I have to say it. <laughs> or Y2K, or Y2J. Chris Jericho, break the walls down! Love his podcast, by the way. Talk is Jericho. Check that shit out. He actually does shit other than wrestling. I, I was surprised when I actually went and checked it out today. Because it said there was a new episode. And it was about JFK. Like, new evidence in the assassination of JFK. And he talks about that the entire episode. Guy is really smart. He doesn't get enough credit. That's for damn sure. July 24th, the year 2000, a U.S. News and World Report article states that Dwayne L. Weber confessed to being D.B. Cooper on his deathbed. 
Weber's wife recalls compelling circumstantial evidence about him, but the FBI dismisses him as a suspect after analyzing fingerprints and DNA samples. 2007, Lyle Christensen contacts the detectives at Sherlock Investigations, a PI agency on the Upper West Side, claiming his brother Kenny is without a doubt Cooper. You know how many people have, like, sold their brothers out thinking that they're some type of serial killer or their D.B. Cooper is a big one? There's been so many people that have been accused of being D.B. Cooper. There's, like, 4,000 D.B. Coopers, apparently. So... And Dan Cooper seems like it would just be a uh, popular name. It's probably why the guy used it. I think it's kind of funny, a little bit creative, that this PI agency is named uh, Sherlock Investigations, though. Sherlock Holmes. It's elementary, my dear Watson. Shout out to Sherlock on uh, Facebook, by the way. He's a shit. Got my back. Got his back. We fucking, we fuck with podcast promoters for fun. Because if you're a podcast promoter and you're listening to this, fuck you. (laughs) Oh my God. It's the most worthless thing you could ever do when it comes to podcasts. You're basically leeching off other people's podcasts. You don't have good enough ideas yourself. Or you just don't have the balls to even try. I'm not saying I'm the best at podcasting or even close to the best. But at least I have the balls to try it. These podcast promoters, all they want to do is get paid to basically post your podcast in the same spots you already post your podcast. So I've asked them. I haven't got any answers of what they would do. That I haven't done already. I asked him where would you post. That I haven't already thought of. Like when it comes to regular social media. Do you have like a secret network? Do you have other resources? Like can you get me promoted on iTunes? Can you get me promoted somewhere. Somewhere big. Like CastBox. And the only thing any of them respond to. Is. They ask you again if you want their services. They go straight to that. Do you want my services? And then I go, no. Because you won't even tell me what your services are. So, podcast promoters, fuck off. You will not get a dime out of me. Can't get a dollar out of me. Alright, so we've kind of heard the legend of D.B. Cooper. We're going to move on to some of the evidence here. Some of the confessions of D.B. Cooper. And then we'll go on to the DNA evidence. And we'll look at the letter. We'll look at some suspects, you know. And have a little fun with this. This is actually, this is one of the ones where you can have a lot of fun with it. Because there's so many different theories. That's what I love about conspiracy theories. That's what I love about just theories in general. Hypotheses, hypothesizes, hypotheses. That's what I like about hypotheses. Is you can have fun with it. You can just make up shit if you really wanted to. Or you can just sit there and spitball, you know? And a lot of people think that's bullshit. They're like, oh, you know, you got no facts to back that up. You know what? It's just a theory. Just a hypothesis. So fuck off. Like one of our, we had an ass hat that gave us two stars the other day. You know, I can respect what he put down because he didn't completely bash us. 
but he did say that our information was not based on fact. It was more assumptions, and it said that it was more for entertainment than anything else. You're fucking dumb. If it's entertaining, that's the whole fucking point, dude. That's what a podcast is for. If it entertains you, good. Give me fucking four or five stars, not two. Fuck you. If you're going to give two stars, just don't even listen to my podcast. <laughs> uh, there's no point. You're going to be that damn picky. And the thing is, too, is you can look at what these people rated on other podcasts. You can see what they did. He said that like three other times. Almost the same exact thing he said to me. So it wasn't just me that he uh, didn't like. He didn't like a lot of other people, too. For the same reason that it was entertaining, but he didn't learn anything. Go read a book. <laughs> if you really want to learn something, go read a book. Or go on the internet. That's where I get all of my research. Just go on the fucking internet. Alright, so enough bitching about the hats of the world. There's going to be plenty of them. We're going to go on to some confessions here. There were three major confessions to D.B. Cooper. Uh, there's been plenty of other confessions to D.B. Cooper, too, of being D.B. Cooper. Walter Ricca made three separate confessions to D.B. Cooper skyjacking during his lifetime. These separate testimonies are essential to the investigation and help corroborate his story. 1999 through 2012, a verbal 12-year confession with his best friend Carl Lauren which Carl Lauren, I do believe, wrote a book after this. Walter and Carl had numerous conversations over a 12-year period, sometimes multiple per day. Carl taped over 10 hours of their conversations, about a third of which was solely about the skyjacking, with Walt's written and notarized permission that they could be released only after Walter's death. In these conversations, Walter discussed his motivation, preparation, and details of the hijacking. They also talked through how Walter spent the money and how his life drastically changed following the skyjacking. Clips from these audio tapes are included in the documentary D.B. Cooper, The Real Story. I got this article from a website that is called D.B. Cooper and it says Walter Ricca right next to it. And it's basically saying that D.B. Cooper is Walter Ricca, and it's an entire website dedicated to that. And there's a documentary that they made, and they wrote a book. Now, I didn't really uh, fit it into my budget to buy the documentary, and I couldn't find a bootleg copy. So I did not watch that. It would be very interesting, though. I still want to watch it. 2013, a written confession. Near the end of Walt's life, Carl helped him type up a written confession to the skyjacking in the style of a last will and testament. Over several weeks, Carl asked Walt to dictate a confession to him, and Carl would record it on paper. Neither of these men were technical. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Logically literate. The process was tedious as Carl printed out the confession by hand and mailed each new version to Walt. Walt would then call Carl and discuss the changes which resulted in the next version being dictated, printed, and mailed repeatedly. Wow. When the product was finally completed, Walt, who was now disabled and unable to drive, waited for the next visit of his sister and niece so they could help him notarize it. However, upon their arrival in 2013, Lisa and her mother refused to take him out of concern for his safety. They understood that Walt could still be prosecuted and were afraid that he would spend his last days in prison. And the third confession came in 2013 also. A personal verbal confession to his sister and niece Lisa Story. During that same 2013 visit to her uncle Walt, Lisa Story heard him confess to being D.B. Cooper and living a life of clandestine operations following the skyjacking. Lisa's mother, Walter's younger sister Sandy, also heard Walt's confession. Lisa could hardly believe it, but slowly the details of Walter's life came together and seemed to support his story. Documents like the KGB identification that Walter gave Lisa helped her realize that there was an overwhelming amount of evidence to back up his confession. I've never heard of somebody that wanted to be guilty so fucking bad. <laughs> But he was dying and he wanted to come clean and he had already gotten away with it, I guess. You know, he wanted all the glory for it, I guess. The thing is, what people have to keep in mind is what he did was still very illegal and he did steal fucking money. Now, it wasn't a violent crime, so I can't really hate him. He was stealing money from the government. The government steals from us. Still threatening people with a bomb, that's bad. Uh, now, there's DNA evidence also. Carl Lauren was convinced that his best friend Walter Ricca was D.B. Cooper and continued to amass as much evidence as possible to support his case. In addition to their numerous conversations and the documents that Walt sent Carl to confirm his story, Carl had one more idea in mind. Carl asked Walt for permission to submit Walt's DNA sample for comparison to D.B. Cooper. However, Walt refused. During a visit to Walt's home in July 2009, Carl took matters into his own hands. Walt was fighting a cold and used a Kleenex to blow his nose. When he left the room, Carl used tweezers to pick up the tissue and place it in a plastic storage bag. He's keeping his snot. That's a little creepy. Upon returning to his Florida home, Carl made an appointment with David Daymore. Again, these fucked up names. David Daymore, a local attorney. He explained to Daymore that he believed that his friend, who he called Mr. Blank, was D.B. Cooper. 
Upon Carl's request, Damore sent the sample to a laboratory for evaluation. When the lab results came in, Damore called Larry Carr, the Seattle-based FBI agent who was heading the Cooper investigation at the time. Keeping Carl's name confidential, Damore informed Carr that he would be sending the results to Carr's office and inquired how long it would take to determine if it was a match. Carr assured him it would take two to three days. The DNA results were overnighted to Carr on July 27th, 2009. About a week later, Walter called Carl and yelled at him. What the fuck are you doing DNAing me? That's a new uh it's a new verb. That was his exact words apparently. That was a quote. DNAing me. That's that that could be taken in a lot of ways. Walt stopped talking to Carl for a few weeks after that. Eventually he forgave Carl and they didn't really speak of it. However, Carl knew this was a turning point. Walt should have had no idea that his DNA had been taken, and yet somehow he was alerted, by whom it was unclear. When Carl informed Damore of the response from Walt, Damore again contacted Carr, who reported that they did not yet have the match results. Damore frequently emailed Carr to get the results. Finally, on October 8th, 2009, 74 days later, Carr sent an email to Damore indicating that the DNA did not match. The result was not unexpected. Even if a match had been confirmed, Carl was sure they would not reveal it. Someone had alerted Walt about the DNA test, and that was fascinating in and of itself. In addition, the 74-day delay was a far cry from the two or three days that had been promised. If anything, the denial was just one more confirmation that Walt's story was true. It's a very compelling story that Walt has here. Um, that really, uh, not that Walt has, that Carl has. Because this is all coming from Carl Lauren. So, take it with a grain of salt because... It is coming from his best friend, so I mean, that might be a good spot to get it, and it also might not be a good spot to get it. Who knows? Now, we're going to look at a few more suspects here. Walter Ricca is the only one that has an entire website dedicated to him, and this one's Robert Rackstraw. I don't know if that's how you say his last name, but I don't give a shit. Now, Los Angeles filmmaker Tom Colbert and a team of investigators are doubling down on claims they have identified the real D.B. Cooper as Robert W. Bob, in quotations, Rackstraw, a former Vietnam soldier who became a university law instructor. And they are saying that parts of Rackstraw's story have connections to Arizona in numerous past interviews with police and journalists, Rackstraw has offered coy and conflicting responses while refusing to confirm or deny he is Cooper. In one TV interview, when asked if he was the hijacker, he smiled and said, Could have been. I can't commit myself on saying something like that. Now 74 and retired, Rackstraw resides in Coronado, California, where Colbert said he has a yacht named Poverty Sucks. That's hell of a name for a yacht. <laughs> Reached this week by phone, Rackstraw declined to be interviewed except in person. 
explaining, I want to know who I am talking to. That's that's fair enough. Many FBI agents concluded Cooper was killed when he jumped from the airliner. Others, including a legion of self-anointed sleuths, have identified countless possible suspects. Rackstraw, at times, was among them. Yet the seminal book on the topic, Skyjacker, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper, by Jeffrey Gray, does not even mention his name. Gray told the Arizona Republic that Colbert and his team are just one pocket of obsession in a sea of chaos. I can see why he would say that. While Rackstraw looked like an interesting suspect, there are a thousand interesting suspects, Gray said. All we have is suspicion right now. That's true. That's really all you have with the D.B. Cooper case. The FBI closed its case on Cooper two years ago, which I do believe this was made in 2017. So I think it was 2015 is when they actually closed the case officially. Colbert claims his team now has proof a hidden code discovered in letters D.B. Cooper sent to media years ago. One of the cryptic messages reportedly says, I am First Lieutenant Robert Rackstraw. Uh, if they're decoding this like they've decoded Nostradamus' shit, it's bullshit. Because <laughs> they basically just find stuff that uh, fits their narrative. Colbert acknowledges he is working on a film and has a vast interest in publicity. But he insists his primary goal is to expose the FBI's failure to do its job. Purportedly because Rackstraw became a CIA operative after the hijacking. Colbert sued the Bureau last year to obtain the case file. Oh, wow. This is horribly embarrassing for them, he said in a phone interview. And the fact that they cut a deal with the CIA is not out yet. Dennis Roberts, Rackstraw's longtime lawyer, offers a different perspective. He is not D.B. Cooper. But these people have been driving him crazy for years. They won't leave him alone. Now, there's a lot more things that get mixed up in this. According to Colbert, Rackstraw served seven years in the Army, earning medals in Vietnam before he was forced out in 1971 due to misconduct. He was a helicopter pilot trained in parachute drops and psychological operations. That background did not place Rackstraw onto the FBI's list. But in 1975, someone broke into an armory at Rackstraw's former military base in California and stole explosives. FBI agents reportedly viewed the former soldier as a person of interest. No arrest was made. In 1977, Rackstraw's stepfather disappeared in Stockton, California. Arrest warrants were issued alleging Rackstraw forged the missing man's name on checks. Separate charges were filed for shipping explosives to a fellow Vietnam veteran. Jesus. While awaiting trial, Rackstraw vanished. Two Stockton detectives realized he not only resembled FBI sketches of D.B. Cooper, but had a skill set of skyjacking. They tipped off an FBI agent. A file was opened. In 1978, the fugitive was traced to Iran where he was training pilots for the Shawnee. Just as Rackstraw was returning to the United States, his stepfather's body was uncovered from a shallow grave. Two bullets in the head. 
Rackstraw testified during his murder trial, I didn't kill my father, but I swear to God that I'll find out who did. He was acquitted but faced other charges when he disappeared again, this time while flying a rental plane over Monterey Bay. Rackstraw issued a mayday call and announced he was ditching the aircraft. No wreckage or body was found. Rackstraw was rearrested a few months later. Media reported the captured fugitive might be linked to the 1971 skyjacking. Um, I'm doing this while my children are awake. So if you hear uh, random pounding, screaming, tattling in the background, more than likely it's my children, all four of them. So, But you might be wondering... What is Rackstraw's connection to D.B. Cooper? The Cooper Connection. Amid the publicity, a man named Dick Briggs, good old Dickie Briggs, allegedly told two friends that he, not Rackstraw, was the real D.B. Cooper. One of those friends, Ron Carlson, told The Republic their conversation occurred in 1979. The Republic was a newspaper. Carlson said the men were at a party in Portland when Briggs pointed out a young couple and predicted they, along with their son, would soon discover, in quotations, buried along the Columbia River cash from the airline heist. Carlson said he thought the whole thing was a fabrication until a few days later when the couple and a boy appeared on TV newscasts with $5,800, reportedly found on the river's bank while digging a fire pit. The bill's numbers traced to the hijacking, which, like we said, those were the only bills that were found from the hijacking. Carlson, who now lives in Meadowview, said he didn't tell anyone about Briggs's story until 2011 when he described the saga to a camera operator who worked for Colbert. Uh, yeah. The disclosure led to five years of investigation by a team of 40 former law enforcement officers. Colbert said Briggs did not fit the description of the hijacker. But they learned he was a Rackstraw associate and came to believe money from the hijacking was planted to remove suspicion from Rackstraw. So basically they're saying that the money that was found was to throw them off of the trail of Rackstraw. The ruse worked, Colbert added. FBI agents decided a criminal wouldn't leave cash behind. So the discovery was strong evidence Cooper hadn't survived. Ten months later, Briggs died in a car wreck that was ruled an accident. You want to come say something about D.B. Cooper? Okay. And my son just came down to drink water. And then he's off to the races again. ADHD will do that to you. He's very, very hyper, but I love him to pieces. In March of 1979, Colbert reports, Rackstraw contacted a L.A. television station and offered journalist Pete Noyes an exclusive on the real D.B. Cooper, which led to another Arizona twist. What a twist! Noyes, which I'm assuming that's how you say his name, N-O-Y-E-S, Noyes. Weird way to spell that, but it's his last name. He can't control that. Noyes requested proof. Rackstraw offered a morsel. He said he had learned to parachute as a 16-year-old boy vacationing in Phoenix. His instructor was an uncle, Ed Cooper, and that's how he came up with the pseudonym. The confession interview never happened. 
Rackstraw was convicted on five felony counts related to fraudulent checks and pleaded no contest to the explosives charge, according to Colbert. He served more than a year behind bars. Now, was he D.B. Cooper? There's a lot of evidence that shows that Rackstraw may have been D.B. Cooper. Really, the big suspects in this case have been Rackstraw, and then we've got Rekka. And Rekka is the one that has an entire website dedicated to him, so... One year after Colbert began investigating Rackstraw, he offered to buy Rackstraw's story. Rackstraw expressed interest and brought in his attorney, but they later threatened to sue. Roberts, the lawyer, told the Republic that Colbert was ruining Rackstraw's reputation and it made him sick. But he also acknowledged Rackstraw had cultivated the D.B. Cooper identity in part to meet women. <laughs> oh my god. Colbert's film aired along with a book titled... The Last Master Outlaw, How He Outfoxed the FBI. For several years during interviews with the Indianapolis Star and other publications, Rackstraw refused to say whether he was Cooper. Colbert said that his team worked on the 2016 documentary in collaboration with the FBI until the film was nearly complete and the Bureau backed out. Colbert then sued, demanding FBI investigative records under the Freedom of Information Act, including material he says the FBI provided to another researcher, but not to him. The case is pending. While Rackstraw is not a party to the lawsuit, he filed a motion to intervene, referring to himself as a disabled homeless veteran. The 17-page petition asked a judge to issue arrest warrants for Colbert and other team members charging conspiracy to commit premeditated murder. It claims they hired gunmen to ambush him. It says their 2016 documentary left him defamed, harassed, and killed as he suffered a major heart attack and died. The request mentions damages of $1 billion. It concludes, Please do not let them kill me again. Rackstraw's motion was denied, of course. He's asking for a billion dollars. Now, this is a hypothetical timeline here that we have next, and it's based on this Kenny Christensen, and he was another major suspect, too. Uh, now, Ra it sounds like, now, it sounds like Rackstraw and Rekka are the two main ones. Now, we went through those guys. I found somebody that had a hypothetical timeline. If this timeline is correct, they're saying that it's Kenny Christensen and Bernie Geetzman now, Kenny Christensen was the actual D.B. Cooper, the guy that actually did the hijacking, the skyjacking, I guess, and bailed. And then Bernie Geetzman was basically the getaway driver, and he was the guy on the ground that helped him get away. They're both very unassuming people. Now, if you look up Rackstraw, he kind of fits the description of D.B. Cooper, but this uh, Ken Christensen is almost a dead ringer, if you look up him, too. The FBI sketch is very vague. It looks like just a guy. So it does match up with a lot of people because it is very vague. Now, approximately six to eight weeks prior to the hijacking, Bernie Geetzman purchased a station wagon and an Airstream trailer, which if you don't know what an Airstream is, it's those big metal travel trailers that look like freaking uh, spaceships almost. Very expensive, surprisingly. The station wagon was purchased from a used car lot in Elma, Washington, and the trailer from a bank repo sale. 
and that Mr. Geetzman parked the trailer on shop property he owned in Oakville, Washington, and drove the wagon back to his house in Bonnie Lake, Washington. Further, that the reason for the leaving the trailer unattended in Oakville was because it was part of the plan for the hijacking. Probably a hideout spot, I don't know for sure yet. Kenny Christensen constructed a phony bomb in Geetzman's garage approximately two weeks prior to the hijacking and was seen doing this by Geetzman's niece. Further, that the niece did not associate with the project, in quotations, Kenny was working on at the time with the hijacking until she saw the decoded program on Christensen in 2011. Lastly, that Denise related this story in great detail for the upcoming documentary by Minnow Films titled The Mystery of D.B. Cooper. Sometime on Tuesday, November 23rd, 1971, day before the hijacking, Christensen and Geetzman left the Bonnie Lake area together in Geetzman's station wagon and drove to the shop property in Oakville that was owned by Geetzman, where the men stayed in the trailer overnight and made their final plans regarding the hijacking. The next day, November 24th, both men drove to Portland International Airport and Christensen was dropped off there by Mr. Geetzman, who then returned to wait in the trailer in Oakville. Christensen approached the ticket agent at Northwest Airlines and asked whether the flight scheduled to Seattle that day was a Boeing 727 and that the reason he did this is because Geetzman, a former employee of Boeing, who had worked on the 727 years before, had told him it was possible to open the rear air stairs in flight. Ice cream. You scream. I scream out my butthole. Mmm, caramel ice cream. My woman just got back from grocery shopping and she stopped at Culver's and got me caramel ice cream. Now, the reasoning for that was that Geetzman was a former employee of Boeing and he had worked on the 727 years ago and had told him it was possible to open the air stairs in flight. And further, that the jet would still have flight capabilities since Geetzman had seen this test done at Boeing Seattle on a 727 while it was in development. So he knew that the, it could do this, allegedly. Christensen then bought a ticket to Seattle on the same flight for about $20 and boarded the aircraft. I wish it was that cheap now. We take vacations all the time. And hijacked it soon after it departed from Portland. In addition, he boarded wearing a cheap suit, loafers, sunglasses, a paper bag with unknown items in it, and wearing a toupee he had worn previously on special occasions. You're going to have a paper bag with unknown items in it? That would not fly in a post-9-11 world that we live in now. Everything, fucking, everything gets scrutinized, you know? Now, Christensen's initial difficulty with the air stair release control as well as additional time to secure the money bag for a jump caused him to jump farther south than he had originally planned. So he didn't jump out quick enough. Christensen made several accidental references to stewardess Tina Mucklow, providing clues pointing both to where he lived, looking like Tacoma down there, and where he was from originally. Minnesota is a nice country. Oh, he's from Minnesota. What the fuck? Oh my god, I really hope this it's not this guy now. <laughs> 
Christensen also accidentally made a key reference to knowing where the portable oxygen bottles on Flight 305 were stored. Since the location of these bottles varies depending on the airline, it is an indicator that the hijacker was probably an employee of Northwest Airlines. Because Christensen was a former Army paratrooper, he tied the money bag tightly and then secured a separate cord to his waist that connected to the bag, similar to the paratrooper method. Once no flight crew members were within sight, Christensen switched out his loafers for a pair of heavy shoes from the paper bag, secured whatever other items were in the bag, and then opened the air stairs. Further, he threw the non-working dummy parachute, the briefcase with the phony bomb, and the remains of the paper bag out the rear of the craft. This also was an effort to throw off any ground search, should the items be found later. Now, although Christensen was careful to retrieve or dispose of any evidence, he left his clipped tie on a seat in plain view, knowing it could not be traced to him because he was not the original owner of the tie. So that would have kind of like thrown him off, actually. This is the jump right here. Christensen then backed down the air stairs wearing a single parachute and facing the rear of the jet pulled the rip cord while he was still standing on the stairs which allowed the chute to inflate and pull him safely off the stairs. He did this because he was wearing a single chute without a reserve and in case it failed to open he could go back into the jet and try the other parachute. That's pretty smart. Christensen landed safely somewhere between Ariel and Amboy in southwest Washington. He then disconnected the harness and container from the main canopy, buried the canopy in a location later discovered by the FBI in 2008, and used the container to carry out the ransom cash. The money bag and harness was disposed of elsewhere. Christensen made his way to the main road sometime the next morning and used a payphone to contact Geetson at the shop building in Oakville. Geetson then met up with Christensen later and picked him up, probably towing the Airstream trailer. Lastly, that Christensen and the ransom money were hidden in the trailer while Geetson drove both men back to Boney Lake. <laughs> Boney Lake area. The main reason these men were never investigated or became suspects in the case is because the FBI did not do background checks on Northwest Airlines employees after the hijacking, although they were instructed to do so by superiors. The reason was because the FBI agent Ralph Himmelbach, we already talked about him before, Himmelbach, believed such an effort covering thousands of employees would be a waste of time and resources. We already talked about him a little bit. Soon after the hijacking, Geetzman sapped a photo of Christensen walking through the front door of Christensen's apartment and that Christensen is shown in the picture carrying a briefcase and a paper bag similar to the ones carried by the hijacker and that this photo was discovered after Christensen died. Well, the whole problem is with that, though, he said that he ditched everything. He said he ditched the briefcase and the paper bag unless this was taken before the hijacking. Now, the photo was done as a memento of the hijacking. Lastly, the briefcase and paper bags shown in the picture are not the original ones used by Christensen during the hijacking, but serve as props for the memento picture. 
Yeah. You can, I can see the picture right now. If you look up Kenny Christensen and Bernie Gatesman, this will probably pop up on your Google. To it all trusty, rusty Google. And, and he is carrying a paper bag and a briefcase. But how many people have paper bags and briefcases? Thousands. I've got a paper bag and a suitcase right now. <laughs> I'm not D.B. Cooper. I was not alive. Now, about five months later, Geetzman had asked Christensen for a $5,000 loan to give to Don Androsko. I do believe is how you say her name. And Mrs. Adrosko needed this money to repair a house in Buckley, Washington that she had recently purchased. Uh, according to Adrosko's testimony, it was her brother Bernie who delivered the money, although he denied it in interviews, saying that he knew about the loan but had nothing to do with it. And Mrs. Adrosko repaid the loan in about two years, so she actually paid it back. August 16th, 2016, was about a month after the FBI announced they were closing the case on D.B. Cooper. And a senior FBI agent named John Jarvis told three witnesses, all with the government security clearances and civilian jobs with the government, that the real reason the case was closed was because the FBI now knew the identity of the hijacker and that the hijacker was dead. That's pretty much what it is. And there's a picture of Mr. John Jarvis here. And that would be a smart reason to close it. But they can't really prosecute the motherfucker because he's not there to defend himself. So, yeah. So you guys decide for yourself. The Kenny Christensen one was one that I really hadn't heard much about. I'd heard the name. I didn't really hear much about it. But I guess it's time for me to give my opinion. Now my opinion. After looking at all the evidence. Everything. If I had to pinpoint one of these guys, I'm going to go with Walter Ricca. Walter Ricca seems like the guy that did it. There's so much evidence against him. Uh, there's a lot of witness testimony. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence. It's all circumstantial evidence. There isn't really any physical evidence. Uh, people say that there's physical evidence, but there's actually none. Which, in a lot of these cases... There's not going to be any. So that's Walter Ricca, and I'm, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Now, to end the story here, I kind of wanted to read the note that... Uh, this is a note that D.B. Cooper had supposedly sent to one of the newspapers. And they've been trying to decode this thing, because they've been looking into it, thinking that there's a code in it. Sirs, I knew from the start that I wouldn't be caught. I didn't rob Northwest Orient because I thought it would be romantic, heroic, or any of the other euphemisms that have seemed to attach themselves to the situation of high risk. I'm not a modern day Robin Hood. Unfortunately, do have only 14 months to live. My life has been one of hate, turmoil, hunger, and more hate. This seemed to be the fastest and most profitable way to gain a few fast grains. Of peace of mind. I don't blame people for hating me for what I've done, nor do I blame anybody for wanting me to be caught and punished, though this can never happen. Here are some, not all, of the reasons working against the authorities. I'm not a boasting man. I left no fingerprints. I wore a toupee. I wore putty makeup. So he's basically saying he had stuff on his face. 
They could add or subtract from the composite a hundred times and not come up with an accurate description, and we both know it. I've come and gone on several airline flights already, and I am not holed up in some obscure backwoods town. Neither am I a psychopathic killer. As a matter of fact, I've never even received a speeding ticket. Thank you for your attention, D.B. Cooper. Wow. So if this is from D.B. Cooper, that's pretty crazy. They still don't know for sure if it is from him. And I gave my opinions. Now remember, we love you here at Conspiracy Asylum. We'll always love you. So suicide hotline numbers 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. If you need help, please, please get help. You can also find the link to the Suicide Lifeline on our website, theconspiracyasylum.com. And a reminder also, if you want a free sticker and a postcard, go ahead and hit us up, theconspiracyasylum at gmail.com. Or go to theconspiracyasylum.com where we have our various points of contact. And you could also check out our Patreon page. Our Patreon page, there's a link on our website. And $1 to $10 gets you two bonus episodes every month, plus ad-free episodes, plus a 15% off coupon to our Etsy store, and go check out our Etsy store. There's a link on our website for that, too. TheConspiracyAsylum.com. Go check that shit out, guys. We love you here, Conspiracy Asylum. And a shout-out, too, to my homie Jordan, uh, Yeti Stomp. Good old Yeti Stomp on SoundCloud. Uh, he did the new intro beat for us. I added the words to it, but he did the beat for us. Very generous of him. Uh, my daughter actually really likes the beat, too. So, good job, dude. We really like it here. We've been rocking out to it. Your padded cell is now open. You may leave. Bye, co-conspirators. Bye.